Rob, along with your colleagues, our colleagues at EBE, you've recently published a new review, which is sort of a follow-up to the 2014 What Makes Great Teaching report that was very popular. Um, can you tell us how this new review moves the great teaching conversation forward following that 2014 report? Essentially, um, what's different and why? Okay. Um, so I think this did start out, in my head at least, as an update to that 2014 report. And it felt like that, that the success of that and the popularity and the influence that it had on people uh, certainly surprised me and continues to surprise me. People come up to me today and say, oh, you know, this changed my life. And you think, well, oh, really? Um, so, yeah, no, they actually do say that. Uh, quite a few people, actually. And it's it's great to hear that because, you you know, you write these things and you don't know how they're going to be received. But this was popular. So um, can you follow that? And um, that that felt like a pressure. It was five years old. There's lots of new evidence. So we thought we should probably update it. But then as we started to think about what would be useful in the current context, the whole project grew to be something quite different. So <clears throat> instead of being just an update um, to that report, which, which sort of looks into the evidence about effective pedagogy, we ended up doing that. Um, and the first part of this, the review, is, is a summary of the evidence about what kinds of teacher, teacher behaviours, teacher knowledge, teacher beliefs, um, characteristics, are important for um, determining how much their students learn so that's the real that's the criterion what what matters to student learning um, so we've reviewed that evidence but the whole thing uh, it, you know became clear that that wasn't going to be enough just to review that evidence we have to give teachers tools that help them to um, understand what that means in their context to understand uh, where they're improving if they're trying to work on those things um, so that they can see uh, what it actually means to to you know each of those elements. What does it actually mean for me in my context? And so the whole thing has become a whole lot more ambitious. And this review is the first stage of that uh, sort of ambitious project. Yes, that's right. So the review, which um, gets published uh, next week or a couple of weeks, is um, is basically just sets out what does the evidence say. And in a way, I mean, that, we had to do that first because we want the whole, you know, evidence-based education. It's got to be grounded in that evidence. We need to have a clear statement about why we think these are the things that are important. And sometimes that evidence is great and sometimes it's not as full or as good as you'd want it to be. And quite often that's the case, of course, in research. But we, we needed to set that out to start with um uh, but the in a way the the kind of exciting bit of it is yet to come the bit that really helps people i think hopefully yeah okay just to clarify is um you in your pantry there that's where the best wi-fi is in your house <laughs> is that right it's yeah yeah it's the best wi-fi and um obviously where all the food is too yeah. okay so in the, all the biscuits yeah people be looking on the shelves the review we present a model for great teaching that um, comprises four overarching dimensions 
and with in each dimension there's a set of elements of great teaching so before i ask you about each of the dimensions um can you tell us how you arrived at four overarching dimensions and what the relationship is between them Okay, so um, when you start to read all the research that's been written about um, what are the characteristics of really effective teaching, you find that it's a pretty disparate set of um, uh, different studies and different frameworks that people have put forward. And that, in a way, that was the starting point because there are lots of existing frameworks. Some of them are well known, uh, particularly in the US where these are used pretty widely. Some of them have been used quite a lot internationally. Um, in England, we've got our own early career framework, uh, again, which is, um, I think, a really helpful guide. So um, that, in a way, that was the starting point. And you look at, well, how do they cut this thing up? Because teaching is such a complex mix of a whole range of different skills and behaviours and practices. <clears throat> so it's not obvious how you, how you split it up. And the answer is that pretty much all do it differently. Some of them have um, kind of eight dimensions, some have six, some have four, some have three. You know, you more or less pick any number and you can find a framework that has that many elements in it. So um, I guess it was partly based on that research evidence. And I'd say one of the, the, the body of work that has been quite influential is work that's been done in Germany here. Um, and there's a, a study, a, a paper that summarizes that by Pretorius et al. in 2018, but that's basically a 20 year or more uh, journey of work by a, a big team of people, mostly in Germany. And um, they come up with what they call a three dimensional model. Um, and that's based on empirical um, a factor analysis, if you like, a, a statistical technique for. Um, crunching down a lot of things into a small number of dimensions so there is an empirical grounding to it um, and that was in a way our starting point now what they don't have and all the frameworks have things that they include and things that they don't in that framework there's nothing about content knowledge or or to the extent that content knowledge appears it's sort of integrated into one of those dimensions but it's not really stressed and i think when we read again actually uh, quite a lot of german work on this uh, by a different team um, they really do stress content knowledge and i think lots of other evidence suggests that content knowledge is really important and then there was a debate about well do we put content knowledge as a separate dimension um, and the you know pros and cons of doing that or do we say actually Content knowledge is important, but it's really important in the way that it impacts on teachers' practice and the way it's manifested in the classroom. So there's no point in having lots of knowledge about your subject if you don't um, convey that in particular ways to students and interact with students in particular ways as well. And, and of course, that's true. So the danger of having it separate is that it starts, it could be seen as something that is separate, which of course it isn't. And the day, the, but the strength of having it separate is that you draw attention to it and you emphasize it. And in the end, we decided that was a the more powerful argument, but also that there's um, the, the dimension where it would have gone was already quite big. So partly out of a sense of balance. So, you know, you're trading off these sort of practical against uh, theoretical concerns. And I think for me, the, the main reason for having four in the end, 
So essentially what we've got is uh, subject content knowledge as, as the first one, and then the three German ones more or less as they are in that literature. And that maps onto, um, in fact, one of the reasons for that is that in that study and in other work by that team, they argue that this is um, basically captures uh, many other views about um, how this should be split up. But it is a reasonably ar arbitrary thing. Okay. But I think, sorry, the, the, um, the powerful argument is about the narrative about uh, what great teachers do that, that I think comes across really strongly from these four. So great teachers need to understand the content of what they're teaching. That's a kind of prerequisite before you even get into the classroom, a deep understanding of the material you're teaching, subject knowledge. Then they, number two is about creating a, a supportive environment. So that's about the relationships and the... Uh, the values in their classroom, if you like. So again, that's that's all sort of foundational stuff. Uh, number three is then about managing that classroom experience to optimise the amount of learning time. Mm -hmm. And then number four is about activating learners' hard thinking. So you're presenting material and questioning and feeding back and uh, encouraging them to um, evaluate their own learning and so on. Uh, in order to get them to think hard about the material you want them to learn. So it felt like there was a quite a sort of simple but powerful story about these four things that, that great teachers do. Yeah, okay. And um, obviously education is something that a lot of people feel passionately about. And a lot of people will have a view on what's important to student learning. And some people will suggest elements that they consider to be important are missing from the review. So can you tell us um, how the dimensions and the elements, and you've touched on this already, um, how those elements that make up the review and the model, how have they been selected? Okay, so um, I think what we tried to do was to be pretty comprehensive so if we found that something appeared in a particular framework or model, then we would um, try to include it in ours if we possibly could. Obviously, we'd only do that if we thought there was evidence to support it. Um, so there are some things in some of the frameworks where I think uh, we have left them out because we think, although it's in that framework and, and teachers might think, oh yeah, that's an important thing, for good teachers to do actually there isn't really any evidence to support it or even any um strong theoretical rationale i think mm. but broadly speaking i think we've erred on the side of putting things in where the evidence you know maybe and then quite often you've got these sort of boundary cases where the evidence is not fantastic or it's a bit disputed or some studies find that this thing matters and other studies find it doesn't matter or sometimes you find there are uh, correlational studies that say this is related to effectiveness when you when you just look at classrooms but when people have tried to do intervention studies in other words they've tried to help teachers to learn how to do a particular thing they find either no effect or inconsistent effects or sometimes just very small effects um, so that's quite hard to know does, does that does that mean you leave it out or you put it in and I'd say on the whole we've we've tended to leave things in if we think there's a, a plausible case for it being in. And then as a, um, the next phase of the work will be much more to investigate how, how important these different things are. Because we've ended up, so we've got these four dimensions, and then within each dimension, there are these sub-elements, if you like. So it breaks down, I think there are 17 
overall. Um, <clears throat> now, you can't say to a teacher, you've got to be instantly good at all 17 things because you can't work on 17 things at once. Um, you, most people can't work on more than one thing at once, actually. So a, a good question will be, well, what's the most important? Which of these things are really make the most difference to students learning or in or i guess our our way of formulating that question would be much more about which of these things are the most important for me to work on to improve my practice because this is very much rather than a a tool for kind of judging teachers it's a tool for helping teachers to improve that's that's very much how we're coming at this yeah. um so you know if i work on classroom management is that more useful than if I work on questioning techniques, you know, those are both in there, they're, they're different elements. Um, and the answer probably is that it depends uh, on, on you as a teacher, depends where you're at, depends the type of uh, youngsters you're teaching, the type of material you're teaching, the type of school you're in, and you know, all sorts of other factors like that. And those are generally speaking, not that well understood. Um, but it's also possible that some of these are, are generally quite high leverage strategies and some are um, uh, much more marginal if you like and and I don't think we really know we discussed that a little bit in the report and certainly people some people make those claims I mean Dylan William for example picks out a, a, a kind of narrow range of things that he calls formative assessment and all of those things are in our model um, but they're in there with a whole lot of other stuff and he would argue mm. well yes a whole lot of other stuff fine but in a way, you're distracting people from these core things that are the, the highest leverage, the most important things for most teachers to work on. And he may well be right about that. I don't think the evidence is um, completely conclusive about it. But we'll start with some hunches about what we think are the most important things. And we'll try mm. and verify those with, with better data as we go. And just quickly, when you talk about evidence for... Uh, certain teaching practices or impact what what clarify for us there what, what what you mean by that okay so i think uh broadly there's three kinds of evidence that we're interested in um that, that go to supporting these dimensions and elements so one is is most of it is correlational so this is studies where people observe classrooms typically or they take um they collect information about teachers perhaps questionnaires or other things like that qualifications and things and they look to see whether teachers who have this characteristic or teachers who behave this way in a classroom do their students seem to learn more so it's a kind of matching a value added in student learning uh, as from, from assessments with observed behaviors or characteristics and the problem with all of that literature is of course we don't know which which direction the causation goes you know so things like one of the one of the most um, uh, universally affirmed pieces of research is about high expectations teachers who have high expectations their students seem to learn more or they do learn more we know that's true but what we what's less clear is do, do they learn more because the teacher has high expectations or does the teacher have high expectations because they're the kind of students who are likely to learn more mm. so you know and it's probably a bit of both actually there i think there is some evidence now that um helps us to see that it that at least some of that is in the uh, causation from the teacher's expectation to the student learning 
But until quite recently, I don't think we really had much good evidence about that. So that's the correlation. That's number one. Number two is intervention studies. And obviously these are better. So you try to, if you think high expectations might be the key thing, then you think of a way of trying to change teachers' expectations. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because teachers' expectations are grounded in their knowledge about uh, their experience of teaching. So how can you change them? Anyway, you come up with some way that you think you could change their expectations. You do that uh, ideally in a, in a randomized control trial or a controlled study, and then you see whether the teachers who had that intervention to their students go on to do better. And there are some, plenty of those kinds of studies and where they align with the correlational ones, that's great. And then the third kind of evidence I would say is more theoretical. So um, evidence about uh, from, from areas like things like cognitive load theory, for example, where there's, there's pretty much no empirical verification of the implications of that in classrooms, in real schools. But it tells us about how people learn and, and how memory works, for example. And uh, so it seems likely that if teachers uh, teach in ways that are uh, compatible with that theory, it'll be more effective. And that, you know, that's just one example. I think there are a few others. Okay. So what I'd like to, to ask you now is to summarize um, each of the dimensions. Um, so without, I guess, going to the sort of whole extent of what every single element means, can you just give people a flavor of, of the four dimensions? Yeah. Um, okay. So um, as I've just outlined, so the first one is about uh, content knowledge. We call that the understanding the content, subject knowledge. And uh, most discussions about this split this into the kind of pure content knowledge. You know the material you're teaching and what's called pedagogical content knowledge, which is much more about how people learn that particular content, how students learn that and how you present it. Um, so I guess we followed that really, the, the content knowledge. You, you need to understand the material you're teaching and in particular have a, a really deep and connected knowledge. So it's not just enough to be uh, sort of one page ahead on the textbook, if you like. You've got to be ready for those hard questions that students will ask you. And in fact, that you as a teacher should be asking the students as well. And if you don't have the uh, really deep and, and uh, well-connected flexible understanding of your own content knowledge, then you're unlikely to be able to answer those or ask those kinds of questions. Um, this also includes things like um, understanding student misconceptions. So again, in any topic area that you're teaching, and this is, I would say, very much more about topics than subjects. So you might be a physics teacher, but you're really good at teaching light, but you're not so good at teaching forces or, you know, whatever it might be, because you've taught light a few times to year nine, whereas you haven't uh, taught forces recently. So, you know, the physics well, but you're familiar with one topic and you're not familiar with another. So student misconceptions, but also um, having lots of examples and, uh, you know, uh, models that you can use to explain ideas and that kind of thing. And that applies, um, yes, to secondary teachers, but it also applies uh, right down to early years. I would say, in a way, um, the, the idea of content knowledge, you know, if you're teaching reading, you might think, well, I, I know how to read, so that's fine. 
um, but actually it's about knowing the anatomy of reading you know what are the component elements and, and how children learn that process so uh, being able to read yourself is not enough you need to understand things like morphology and phonology and all those other uh, elements of, of that go up to that go to make the reading process okay so that's dimension one which is about content knowledge dimension two is about the supportive environment and this is about the classroom culture it's about the relationships that exist so the relationships between the teacher and the students the students towards the teacher so respect and trust and um, <coughs> um, <coughs> avoiding uh, kind of negative uh, emotions like sarcasm and things like that um, student interact student reactions with it, uh, interactions with each other are also important there so climate of trust and respect among students uh, under this dimension we've also included motivation so it's important that students are motivated to learn and that means they need to uh, feel competent they need to feel um, socially connected so that it kind of matters from a, a social point of view um, and they also f need to feel a sense of autonomy. That's what um, uh, motivation theory tells us. So that's an example where that's drawn from theory. Um, and high expectations also comes in there. So the idea that your teachers are demanding, so the culture of the classroom is that only a very high standard is good enough, but at the same time, it's, it's a forgiving culture. So if I have a go, that's got to be rewarded even if I don't succeed. I've got to feel that it's okay to make mistakes and so on. So that's dimension two, which is about the classroom climate, if you like, a supportive environment. Number three is essentially about classroom management, um, but we've, we've called that maximizing opportunity to learn because I think it's really important for teachers to understand that classroom management is not an aim in itself, it's a means to an end, and the end is that you, you uh, achieve the maximum efficiency of learning time. So the reason you need to manage the classroom well is so that most of the time, ideally all of it, is spent on productive learning activity. So that's about managing starts and ends of lessons. It's about uh, transitions between activities. So a minimum of time gets lost uh, in those kind of logistic activities. Uh, it's about having clear expectations and rules and being consistent in how they're applied. Uh, it's about responding to disruption in ways that are uh, minimise it so it doesn't happen again. And responding to disruption, of course, is, is a proactive thing. So when you watch really good teachers teach, you, you don't actually see any disruption. It doesn't happen. Uh, it would happen if they weren't doing some of the things they're doing that you perhaps don't notice unless you, uh, you're looking out for them. That are actually preempting, uh, you know, they're anticipating potential disruption and they're nipping it very much in the bud. So uh, those kinds of techniques, if you like, the kind of classroom awareness. And then the final dimension, number four, we've called activating hard thinking. And in a way, this is the uh, really the biggest part and maybe the hardest part. I don't know. It's it's hard because it's sort of invisible you can't really tell you can in relation to things like um, managing classroom behavior that's very visible you can see whether you're succeeding in that or not yeah but in relation to getting students to think it's much harder to tell whether it's working or not because thinking goes on in people's heads and you don't see it directly 
and so uh, obviously assessment is is the the window into that but it tends to be delayed and you know you don't see it in real time so uh, these i think are the the ones where the feedback that we hope to give as a result of this um creating these tools is is likely to be most effective or may well be and, and this covers a whole range of things from the way that um, teachers structure the knowledge. So they structure the curriculum and the activities and they clarify that. So the students understand what, what it is, what success looks like, what they're trying to learn. The way that teachers explain ideas. So they present uh, not too much to overload, but, you know, it connects to what students already know and so on. It's clear explanations. Questioning uh, is another element of that. So teachers ask questions. They ask questions to promote thinking, but they also ask questions to elicit thinking, to, to see what's in students' heads, what they understand. And assessment in, comes under that heading as well. Um, then the, there's what we call interacting, which is about the, the kind of feedback that goes both ways, the, the kind of learning interaction, the discussion, the back and forth that, that teachers have with students embedding which is about making sure things that have been uh done that, that once students can do something that they can then uh, make those really secure but they can also remember them so they don't forget they, they um, make it stick in their memory and then finally activating which is about getting students to be um uh, their own agent as a learner so to be independent to be uh, self-regulated, to monitor their own learning and so on. So metacognition, I guess, comes under that heading too. So hopefully we've, we've covered pretty much most things. I mean, you asked earlier, you know, it, will teachers think, oh, you've missed out my favorite yeah. thing. I mean, I, I, I hope we won't, and, but I'd be, you know, we're keen to hear from anyone who thinks, oh, you've missed out. Uh, I think people might well say, you haven't really emphasized certain things enough. So yeah. one thing uh, we've had in a bit of the feedback is about um, SEND, special needs and disabilities. And we, we say a little bit about that. We don't say a lot about it. And that's partly because I don't think there's a lot of very good research that specifically says, here are things that you should do different for uh, different kinds of uh, okay. special needs. In general, I think the things that work for um, children with special needs are the same things it's just that they um, they're more critical in a way you know so if a if a beginning reader has dyslexia you really need to get the phonics right you really need to get the sequence of teaching right but you need to do that for every every learner actually uh, it's just that if, if, a, if a child has a specific difficulty it's really really important as opposed to just really important yeah and you you touched on what people might feel uh, is, is missing from the review. And we know from feedback um, that people have said that they would really like to see examples of these elements in, in the yeah. report. And it was actually intentional that we haven't put any in. Can you sort of explain a bit uh, uh, behind the, the reasoning for not including yeah. So this is a really good challenge. And actually, um, I definitely thought we should put examples in. And I did try to create some examples, uh, partly because, um, uh, as I've said, one of the elements of um, that great teachers do is about we've called structuring, which is about clarifying what the learning objectives are. And in that, we've argued that 
you don't do that just by uh, a kind of abstract description of, of, you know, here's what you need to be able to do. You have to give students examples of, well, what does a good one look like? Um, so if you want them to, if you want your students to learn how to write good essays, for example, it's not enough just to list the criteria for good essays, you know, say it has to be coherently planned with a logical structure and fluent writing and blah, blah, blah. Um, you have to actually give them examples and, and examples and non-examples. So you say, well, here's a really good example. Here's one that isn't quite as good. Can you see why? And that kind of thing. So that's what we've, we're saying good teachers should do. So obviously we should do the same thing, shouldn't we? Because in a sense, what we're doing here is creating a, a curriculum for teacher learning. We're saying, if you want to be a better teacher, here's what you need to learn. And therefore, exactly the same rules should apply to us. So I thought, right, OK, well, we better try and exemplify these things and create some examples. Now, the problem with that is that um, they're really hard to do. And you, you, you realize the scale of that problem is colossal because what's a good example for, say, I don't know, a, a maths teacher in year 11 is, is nowhere near relatable for um, a reception teacher, let's say. And I, I mean, anywhere in between. Again, there's just so many yeah. different kinds of examples, different contexts. In, in one school, this will look like this. In another school, it will look like that. So I think it's really hard to create those universal examples. And um, what we didn't want to do was to go off sort of half cocked with some uh, with a smattering of not very good examples when what we really needed was a was a big set of, of great examples. So that's the reason I think we haven't got them in there yet. But um, this is definitely part of the project. We will create examples. And when I say we, I, I, I mean a community of teachers. Uh, so I think the, the way we're hoping to do this is a kind of crowdsourcing that that teachers who understand these principles will, will come up with their own examples and share those in a community and through that process, and obviously we'll be involved in that too, uh, we'll create a, a, a comprehensive and high quality set of examples that help to flesh this out. Yeah, well indeed, uh, we've created an online space uh, where we hope people will, will go on there and tell us about what they think these examples look like in their phase, in their context, in their subject. Okay, well, thank you very much, Rob. Um, I'm just going to sign off now uh, by saying um, to those who are tuning into this, if you haven't already, uh, you can download your copy of uh, the review that Rob's been talking about via the links on our website or, or via Twitter. And we'd like you, as Rob says, to be part of this great teaching uh, community. Um, please help us get the conversation going by sharing the, re the review with others, by sharing your examples of what this looks like, what these elements look like in your phase and in your subject. As Rob said, the review is just part one of a long-term endeavor where we intend to identify the kind of professional development that leads to improvement in specific areas of practice. And to do this, we need you, not you, Rob. We need everybody who's, who's watching this and who's reading the review so please do get involved in the conversation and join part of the great teaching community thanks rob thanks